This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is James Ball. I write every week in a new European on what's happening behind the scenes in Westminster and across the world. If you'd like to enjoy more from the new European, do join us by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash subscribe. Hello, Snowflakes, and thanks for taking time out from your second jobs to listen to the New European Podcast. My name is Steve Anglesey. I'm the MP for Summer Isle. And also, in my spare time, well, it's most of my time, actually, I get sacks of cash for doing it. I'm the editor of the New European. Coming up on the New European Podcast, a woman trapped in Iran and facing new trumped-up charges, a husband starving himself in despair, a child facing another Christmas without a mother, and a government that won't pay up to make it stop. Join us as we go inside the trials and tribulations of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe. We'll also be putting more politicians and pundits in the Hall of Shame. And after a dire week for Boris Johnson is finally reflected in the polls, what are the lessons for him and for our democracy? And should MPs really be allowed to have second jobs when so many of them seem incapable of doing their first jobs properly? But first... Sleaze is finally catching up with Boris Johnson. Owen Patterson's in hot water with Radox. Oh, that sounds lovely. I know he should be in in hot water over Randox. Geoffrey Cox is doing fine constituency work in his new constituency. That's the British Virgin Islands East and Mauritius West. Uh, Boris Johnson didn't come to the Commons to own up about that because he was too busy doing the important work of running around a hospital maskless, potentially infecting everybody. In a moment, the former minister, David Liddington, who's written for the New European, issue 268, about a flaw that Boris Johnson shares with some populist leaders. But first, 
We asked listeners of this podcast, what second jobs would you like to see Boris Johnson and his cabinet doing? Christopher McKenna, with breakfast, with Brexit in mind, with breakfast in mind, said, fruit picking, HGV drivers, petrol pump attendants, vets, meat processing workers, restaurant bar staff. I'd like to see uh, them all toiling in the fruit fields, uh, wouldn't you, Christopher? Uh, Rob Monroe says, ditches everywhere are suffering from a lack of ditch clearing. Given Boris Johnson's sworn promise, he would make a fine anti-ditch blocking device. Promises should be kept. He did promise to lie down in a ditch, didn't he? Uh, Claire Walters, bit more route one. She says the second job uh should be uh oh sewing mailbags as their first job and then looking after the prison library as a second job uh we did get some ones uh, that were slightly more serious too as a lee said it depends which minister for which job pretty patel should volunteer for the rnli sunak and gove should volunteer at food banks javid should be a hospital cleaner part-time. Dominic Raab should volunteer at Amnesty International. Wallace should serve in the TA. Basically anything that gives them insight into the department they run. What an incredible idea that is instead of stupid photo ops in high-vis uh, jackets. Melanie Burns picks up the, the, the same point. She says they should be volunteering at local food banks, following nursing staff over a full shift, being a classroom assistant, helping benefit claimants access benefits. Well, living off minimum wage for a year. And if that's too ridiculous, she says, maybe spending some time in their constituencies. And Fiona McLaughlin says an MP's first, second job should be representing their constituents, i.e. the actual job they're paid by us to do. So in a moment, Clarny Hanela on Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe and the Hall of Shame. But first, I'm joined by a former Minister for Europe who spent 27 years as an MP. He was Theresa May's de facto deputy during her, let's call it eventful, spell as Prime Minister. He's written for the New European on the roots of some of the problems the government now finds themselves in. David Liddington, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Uh, David, one thing this excellent piece of yours does not talk about is second jobs for MPs. And people, I think, are quite shocked and appalled by some of what has emerged this week. But also people are, some people are bemused at the idea that MPs who earn a decent wage with substantial benefits should should need to have or have time to have a second job at all. What's before we start on your piece, what's your view of what the second job issue? I think it get, this all goes back to the uh, the days when MPs were expected to be people who I mean originally received no salary at all and, and then a very modest salary. And it was expected to be a part-time job. You 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 did your work in business or, or um, uh, Labour Party side, something they'd be trade union officials who'd be there, uh, and they'd come into Parliament in the evening. And of course, the voting in Parliament usually didn't take place until late at night. Now, I think there's been a change in recent years in working practices and an increase in the, uh, the pay, uh, which you know means that public attitudes do differ now. I mean, my own view is that uh, there's two different questions here. One is, um, have any members of Parliament broken the rules that do exist, particularly mm. on the the declaration of interest and the ban on advocating on behalf of anybody uh, who is paying you money. And there is a system which should be respected, um, which is why the government got itself into trouble when it didn't over Mr. Patterson. 
that they should be respected and penalties you know, can and should be imposed as appropriate. There's a separate issue as to whether the current rules need changing further. I mean, my own view is that it's quite difficult to write down into a rule. For example, how many hours a week should somebody be prepared to yes. spend as an MP? What what is what is the expectation? Is it the forty-eight hour per week specified by the Working Time Directive? Is it sort of sixty hours a week? If you're a minister, you will probably you're doing two jobs: constituency MP and minister, and you'll work a lot longer than forty-eight hours. I can tell you from experience. Um, and there's some MPs who have professional qualifications, um, perhaps medical qualifications, or others that they want to keep up to date. If you're representing a very marginal seat with a small majority, you have no security of tenure and to lose all contact with your previous expertise is quite a, you know, a big risk to expect people to undertake. Um, so I'm, I'm not in favour of a complete ban, uh, but I think it's fair to look at the current rules and assess whether they need updating, whether in respects they need to be made tighter in the light of, of different public attitudes and expectations about what MPs should be doing. We're in, I mean, we're, we're heading into the 10th, 11th day of something which started as a, a sort of quick fire move to, to, to get Owen Patterson off the hook and now is expanding in all uh, directions, quite uncomfortable directions. I mean, you've, you had, uh, when, you were, when you were Theresa May's deputy in, in all but name, deputy without the badge, I think, uh, probably, um, <laughs> you, had, it was quite, you had a quite bumpy period, didn't you? Are, are you surprised by how this has, has been allowed to expand and continue quite a bu- quite a bumpy period is a is a very understated I've been kind, David, yes <laughs> we didn't have a majority um i think what the astonishing thing i find is that the this is a government that has a, a majority normally of about 80 which fell to uh 18 in the vote on mr patterson and and uh where there is clearly discontent that went a long way into the ranks of those who held their noses and supported the government in the division lobby. I really do think the government would have been much better to front things up um, for uh, the, the government, including the Prime Minister personally, to go to the House of Commons, admit that they made a misjudgment, uh, apologise and move on and, and, and try to move on from that, that point, accepting the, the, the report of the All-Party Standards Committee on, on the Patterson case. Um, and I think the reluctance on the government to admit to mistakes is 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 part of the reason why this has kept going. Um, not the only reason. And I think there's just a, there is a lesson there for this and for future governments as well. I mean, the Parliament and the public, in my experience, are much more inclined to be forgiving if a human being and ministers are that uh, you know runs up, says we got it wrong, we made a mess up, and apologises. Yes. Um, in this excellent piece that you've written for the New European, th- th- this this is a, a, a couple of sentences which which stood out for me. You, you write, the temptation for ministers and MPs will be to treat this episode as a one-off. They shouldn't. What happened is the latest example of how the checks and balances that are essential for a free society are now under strain. What, just expand on what you mean by that, please. Yeah, I think I think that there are... Particularly, I think there's two, there's two things that worry me. One is the executive, the government, uh, enhancing its power at the expense of parliament. That's always a risk when you have a government, Conservative or Labour, with a very big overall majority in the House of Commons. But I think it is acute now. And I think the pandemic requiring the use of emergency legislation, I mean, 
some people described as ruling by decree. It wasn't quite that. But what it meant was that many of the normal arrangements for parliamentary scrutiny, for ministers to be challenged and questioned in detail, for parliament to have to approve a new criminal penalty on British citizens before it came into force, were all dispensed with. And while I think that there was perhaps some justification, acceptance of that in the very early days, I think government government as a species, once they've acquired new powers, tend to be very reluctant to give them up afterwards. I mean, even income tax was supposed to be a temporary measure at the time of the Napoleonic Wars in the early 19th century. So I, I worry about that. Uh, and I worry also about the language used sometimes about judges and the courts yes. uh, and about what the government is currently rumoured to be planning, we see various briefings in the press uh, about limiting the right of British citizens to challenge in the courts whether what an official or minister has done is lawful. And it seems to me, um, particularly in a country like the UK, where we don't have a, uh, a, a, a written single constitutional document, but where we rely on a lot of convention, a lot of different Acts of Parliament, uh, leading court judgments and so on to define our constitutional arrangements, that some of those understandings about the balance between Parliament, the executive and the judiciary and courts are breaking down. Uh, and it's all the executive that is trying to accrete additional power to itself. And I think that's something that we should all be alert towards. It's, it's, I say it's not just a risk with this government. I think there's something inherent about government but they feel that what they're doing is right. They understand they've been there wanting to deliver what they've promised in time for the next election, if possible. Um, but it's really important in a free society that you don't allow um, shortcuts, that you have to have proper process and you have to have proper scrutiny of whether action is lawful. Yes, I mean, it's, 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 I think you describe it very tactfully as an impatience with the rules or the rule book or, or whatever, but it, it, that's not a trait that, that is a pattern of behaviour that Boris Johnson seems to be displaying, but it's not a trait that that is alone to him among world <laughs> no, leaders, no, saw, is it? No, no, abso- absolutely not. We, 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 we've seen it with previous British governments. I mean, the, 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 the Labour government under Tony Blair lost patience with filibustering by you know, some of my conservative backbench colleagues in the House of Commons. And so they used their very big majority to ram through the automatic programming. In other words, you know, limiting the time for debate on every single piece of government legislation so that the opposition had did not have time and delay available to it any longer as a serious weapon to check and slow down and challenge what the government was doing. And I think if you... If you do look around elsewhere in in Europe, I, I don't want to draw the comparisons too hard. Every country has its own history yeah. and arrangements. But, you know, you certainly look at what's happening in places like Poland at the, the moment where there are rows with the, the government feeling that the courts are biased against it. I like to some extent, I, I, I do. I get what's going on. There's a hell of a lot of people in all the democracies. Um, you, you saw this in a big way in the United States with the election of President Trump. Who, who feel that the current system has failed them and their families. You know, their living standards have at best been frozen. They're, they, they don't feel particularly secure. You know, new technology, global competition is shaking things up um, enormously. Um, 
much less predictability about careers and living standards. Um, people no longer expect their children to be able to get better living standards than they as parents enjoy today. Uh, and, and that has created an impatience with you know, the way in which traditional democracies operate. And we've seen that in, in the US with Trump. We see it in France when you look at the uh, the number of French voters who are willing to support a candidate like Marine Le Pen or Eric Z uh, uh, Zemmour. And you see it in parts of Central Europe and you've seen it to some extent in the UK and the, the way in which a lot of long-standing Labour voters voted for Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party because they felt that we, we've got to have somebody who's prepared to, if, if you like, take a wrecking ball to some of it, the system isn't delivering for us. Yes. And, and, and so the, there's a behind what worries me about uh, you know, executives, governments trying to challenge uh, rules and uh, checks on their power lies a public impatience with a system that has, they believe is failing to deliver. So I think the challenge for those who, those who want to see checks and balances respected and adhered to is not only to do that, but to do so without being complacent and to find ways through effective policy of addressing uh, what the, uh, the, the real problems uh, experienced by people are. I'd also say, I think, you know, I, 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 I look at the UK, and I, I do some say to my would say to my conservative colleagues uh, now in the government, just with the extra powers you want to take and the the limits on challenge of the courts, for example, would you really be happy for those checks on the power of the executive to be removed if Jeremy Corbyn had been prime minister and his lieutenant John McDonnell had been uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer? It's a good exercise, in my view, for any political party and government tempted to change the rules of the game, just to ask themselves, um, you know, would we be happy with our you know, political opponents uh, being in the driving seat and taking advantage of such additional powers? No political party's hold on government lasts forever. If you were running the government now, <laughs> I mean, you, you must be quite relieved. Um, Telling what, me. <laughs> what, what can you? What can? What would you be doing to try and win back trust? Apart from well, fronting uh, up, and, and I'm and I'm 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 a conservative, Steve. I'm you know, I, it's it's not exactly a secret that you know I I I've not been Boris Johnson's biggest fan. I want his government and his premiership to succeed because I I want the Conservative government to do well and I want our country to do well, and I think they've got some really admirable ambitions in what's described as levelling up, you know, sort of enhancing economic and social opportunities for people in towns and communities, particularly in the North and Midlands of England, who have felt left behind and ignored by successive governments for ages, and decarbonisation as part of industrial regeneration. But you have to turn those slogans into detailed operational plans. And what I would, I would hope to see the government do is to assemble a, a team of talented and effective ministers whom the prime minister trusts and will delegate power to, uh, and then systems organised within Whitehall and in partnership with uh, metro mayors and unitary borough and county authorities around England to deliver those ambitions in terms of detailed operational planning, because that, I think, is where the, the gap lies at the moment, you know, you've got to do the hard graft of getting planning permission, 
going through procurement exercises. If you, you, you want to have many more good quality apprenticeships and technical levels in schools, well, you've got to make sure that you can recruit and keep the teachers and lecturers who are qualified to teach subjects like information technology to a high level and can stimulate students. And you've got to make sure you've got them in every part of the country. And you know, it, it might be more, you know, more difficult to get a really bright graduate in mathematics to go and teach in Humberside than to teach in London or Manchester, because just the cultural pull, the, the social cachet of those big cities is probably more exciting for the average bright young graduate. So you've got to figure out how do we provide the incentives for people to uh, that we need to come and take the work in those areas where we really need that regeneration to take place. And you've got to fix Whitehall to to actually deliver. And I, I, I actually, ironically, I of all people agreed with you know, some of what um, Dominic Cummings was trying to do when he was working in number 10. I just thought he got, he completely um, failed to grasp that you don't achieve much if you just shout at people and tell them that they're useless. You know, morale in, is absolutely vital in getting any large organisation to deliver the goods for you. You've got to get people working together and show that kind of leadership. Just finally, before before I let you go, I mean, you, you left Westminster ahead of 2019 election and others who kind of saw what was going to happen and believed things about the, the nature of the Brexit we were heading into did so too. What happens to all of those people now, the people who are, I think people who listen to this podcast who aren't conservatives, probably respect people like Rory Stewart and Philip Hammond, Amber Rudd, David Gore. It's a long, long list yourself, obviously. Is it is there a way back for, for your group into the Conservative Party or is, is the Conservative Party now a hard Brexit party for, for good? No, I, I think not. And I remain a, a party member. I, I chair uh, the Conservative European Forum, um, which exists to rebuild the voice and influence of those of us in the Conservative Party and on the centre right who want to see a strong strategic partnership between the UK and the other democracies of Europe and the institutions of the European Union, because we believe passionately that that is in our nation's interest, uh, will help our prosperity and security. And it's a key element in global Britain. It's not an alternative to it. I mean, nonsense to talk about global Britain and somehow ignore uh, the region of the world in which the United Kingdom is geographically located and with which our history is entwined. So you know, it's part of global Britain. Um, and I, I think that over time, and it will take time, common interests um, uh, will win through on the European debate. Um, the fact that the EU will remain our most important uh, trading partner anywhere in the world, the, the fact that we have common interests in sorting out corruption and the, 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 the roots of organised crime in the Western Balkans, in making sure that there is resistance to Putin's encroachment upon the democracies of Eastern Central Europe, that we, we try to address the myriad problems and opportunities of Africa, uh, which is on our doorstep and where I think the Americans will expect the European countries, whether in or out of the EU, to take a political lead. Um, so I think that there, there are huge opportunities there. I mean, even at the December 2019 election, a fifth of people who voted Conservative in that general election had voted Remain at the, uh, the, the, the 2016 referendum. And I, I, am, I am confident that uh, 
just given given time, and I say we'll take some years. We do. We've been through an earthquake. We're living through the aftershocks now. That we will build back that voice because I think the Conservative Party is at its most successful when it genuinely seeks to be the national party, and that means being a broad church across the centre right and democratic right of British politics. And as we saw in Cheshire and Amersham, you know, there are risks about allowing yourself to be painted um, in, in a more sort of sectarian, divisive fashion. Um, so I think that appeal of the broad church is something that we need to nurture. David Lydian said, I wish you good luck with that. I hope uh, we will speak again on this podcast. Thank you so much. You can read David's piece on Boris Johnson, checks and balances, and everything that's happened in the last 10 days or so in issue 268 of The New European. It's on sale at newsstands now, or you can subscribe at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, before we go to Clark, I want to tell you about an excellent new podcast from the New European. Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives tells the life stories of amazing Europeans in short 10-minute bursts. A superb listen. It's available wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, too, that if you want to be sure of getting a copy of our newspaper and access to our online archive, please support The New European by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Now, while politicians are using their offices to feather their nests, one man is camped outside the Foreign Office on hunger strike. His plight can't have failed to have moved you. His wife's case can't have failed to anger you. It really isn't complicated. We should be bringing Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe home. I am joined by a new colleague, the writer and author, Clara Nihanela, whose piece on the trials of Nazanin can be read in issue 268 of The New European. At newsstands now or online by subscribing at theneweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. Clara, everyone listening to this is going to be familiar with the long ordeal of, of Nazanin Zagari Ratcliffe. Most of the people listening to it will have seen the desperate sight of Richard Ratcliffe outside the Foreign Office doing incredible things to try and get his wife home. Just give us the sense of how he looked when you met him, what the scene is down there. I imagine it's it's cold, isn't it? And unpleasant. Very cold, very unpleasant. I actually went to see him on day 11. Right. Uh, so he is now on day 18 of his home strike so he's done almost another week when I saw him he was already shivering looking quite frail he's told me that he was beginning to feel slower in himself both physically and mentally and explained to me how this is how a hunger strike works right you get um two for the first two days you're hungry and then that fades away but your mental capacities begin to slow down your body begins to consume itself and what struck me particularly was that he knew this because of course this is the second time that Richard Radcliffe has done a hunger strike in London to get his wife home the first time was in 2019 that time he did 15 days this time he's going further partly because of the presence of Iranian officials at the climate talks in Glasgow so as he said he doesn't want them to turn up he and get away with just whining and dining he wants to rain on their parade and he will push himself to the limit
stomach for that. And that is why he's holding out. Now, it is getting dangerous at this point, which is why some of his friends are asking him, you know, consider what's happening. He is not, he says he isn't going to put himself in danger. He's conscious of his seven-year-old daughter, whose mother is still in Iran and he doesn't want to leave her alone, but he does want to make a point. And he is so desperate because he does not feel that the British government is listening to him or has listened for the past five years. Yes, it's, I mean, it's just, it's incredible, isn't it? Um, I mean, your, your, your piece on, on the front page of the New European this week do make the point that this is actually quite a simple matter, isn't it? What, what could our government do that it hasn't done already to, to solve this? There, there, it is pretty simple. It boils down to money that are owed for tanks that Britain never delivered to Iran um, during the 1970s. So an international court ruled in 2001 that the money was owed. So that's clear. But then there was a lengthy legal battle between the company that was going to deliver the tanks. It was an arm of the Ministry of Defence in the 70s. It's now defunct. Long legal battle. During that time, sanctions came in against Iran. That made it more difficult to pay. However, now that those sanctions, they were EU sanctions, now they're UK sanctions. Richard Ratcliffe told me that the UK could agree to pay the court order debt without um, breaching the sanctions. They could do that. They just need a special license. Iran has applied for that special license. So in Richard Ratcliffe's mind, there is no sanction impediment anymore. But beyond the money, and so what we're waiting for is a way for the British government to pay that money. But beyond that, also, there's a political resistance. And that's where Richard feels that things are being held up. The other thing to remember, of course, that is for ages, the British government did not admit that this debt was in any way linked to Nazneen's case. And I should stress, it's not just her case. There are others as well. There is another man, Anusha Ashuri, who is also a British Iranian national. He's a 67-year-old retired engineer. He too is being held in Iran. He was detained in 2017, charged with spying, sentenced to 10 years in jail. His family are distraught as well, because what you have to remember is both Nazanin and Anusha have been told clearly that your detention is linked to this debt. Britain needs to pay the debt. And yet we see no movement yet from the British government and no explanation. I think this is the hardest thing for the families. They don't understand why this is not being done. And that is very difficult for them because, you know, it's an agonizing years long torture with a lack of transparency. Yes. And and, and the, you know, the old thing about, well, you know, we're not paying this because we're, that would be inviting more hostage taking and more ransoms. Not, I mean, that, that excuse isn't even being used, is it? Let's let's just go through the foreign secretaries who've tried and, and failed to deal with this. Boris Johnson, obviously, we know that we know that he made matters worse, didn't he? He, he sort of blundered as, as he always, as he often does, and uh, and said that Nazanin had gone to Iran to teach people uh, when she was actually on holiday with her daughter, showing off her daughter to her parents, who I don't think had, had met her daughter before. Do you remember who the, the foreign secretary was when, when Nazanin was actually held at the, at the airport in Tehran in, in April 2016? I think the foreign secretary before Boris Johnson was Philip Hammond. It was Philip Hammond, yes. But obviously because of Brexit, he uh, he was then rapidly promoted, wasn't he? And, you know, that didn't go too well. So he was, he was there for a couple 
couple of months. Then Mr. Details, Boris Johnson, two years of, of failure. Then we had Jeremy Hunt for a year, who had to resign because he couldn't work for Boris Johnson. And then we had Dominic Raab, who, who said he came very close to a solution and then he went off to look at sea closures on his paddleboard instead of sort of, you know, finding a solution. And now we've got we've got Liz Truss. Surely now, at a time when the government need a hit, Liz Truss should be getting involved and, and sorting this out. What's she doing instead? Well, first of all, one of the problems is that Nazanin lost an appeal in October to yes. charges. So she is due to be taken back to jail for another year. Now, when she lost the appeal, Richard Ratcliffe met with Liz Truss to find out what they were going to do. And he told me that Liz Truss told him, if they put her back in jail, we will act. That would be a red line for us. I said to him, have we not had red lines before? And he said, the red lines, they are always shifting. So he went on hunger strike in despair because he believed for good reason, that nothing new was going to happen. And it is this ridiculous situation where the British government has followed this policy through five years with no results. And other countries have been more successful in getting people out of Iran. Everyone agrees that this is mainly Iran that's responsible. They seize the people. They are using them as diplomatic pawns. But as Anusha's wife, Sherry, said to me, you expect that from Iran. They are not meant to be a democracy. They are a theocracy and they are a repressive regime, even more so now with a new regime in place. However, you do not expect Britain to use people as pawns. And that is what Richard Ratcliffe and Sherry Azadi say is happening to their loved ones. So Liz Truss, when she met Richard, gave him no hope that anything would change. She is now in the Far East this week, which I find quite strange because she is supposed to be meeting the Ashuri family this week. So I'm hoping that is going to happen. And I know they were very hopeful that would happen because they, too, want to raise the profile of their father and husband who is in Evan jail. So he has never been let out of jail. Nazanin was let out of jail to finish the last part of her sentence under house arrest. She's now waiting for a phone call that may send her back to jail. But Anusha is still in Evan prison. So... The families are now despairing of anything new happening. Liz Truss has given them no reason to believe that anything new would happen. And I saw that Dominic Raab today said he did not think there should be a quid pro quo with the money, which will be disappointing because this is not ransom. This is an decades old debt that Britain owes. And the families are convinced that if they pay this, their loved ones will come home. And in fact, Iran, the Iranian foreign minister tweeted this week because he spoke to Liz Truss on Monday and he tweeted saying that he was urging a rapid repayment of the debt. It's still the main issue. To what extent is America involved in this? And, and to what extent is it all wrapped up in the, the sort of the nuclear deal that was done uh, by the Obama administration with a lot of other countries, the UK, the European Union were involved, weren't they? And, and then, you know, that, that sort of restricted what Tehran would do. Donald Trump withdrew from it in 2018. Iran have since scaled up their nuclear program again. And when when the monitors who were supposed to go in and look at what they were doing uh, with their nuclear program uh, turned up, their their work was was obstru- obstructed. Is is this all linked in with with kind of trying to sort out a big deal that involves? 
the nuclear program as well. Yes, well, that is now what Richard Radcliffe fears. He now fears that his wife's fate and Anusha's fate and the other British Iranian dual nationals, British citizens, their fate is now tied up into this bigger negotiation. And um, that's because the nuclear talks stopped over the summer when the new Iranian regime under President Ibrahim Raisi came into power. They are due to start again at the end of November. Obviously, uh, people want a deal to come out of that. But we know that the foreign nationals being held by Iran are part of this. And the reason we know this is because a deal was almost done in the summer to get people released, including Hmm. Anusha and Nazni. Now, this fell through because the families believe that uh, another hostage, Murad Tabas, who is a tri-national, so he's, he's, uh, he's got nationality from the UK, the US and Iran, and his fate was tied up with this deal for a pit prisoner swap and the debt repayment. And somehow that complicated issues so that uh, Sherry Izadi, Anusha's wife, she told me that foreign office officials told her that the Iranians wanted more for Murad Tabas and that the uh, Americans didn't want to do that. So it is becoming more complicated. It is being tied into the nuclear talks now with some analysts speculating whether we could get some movement on these essentially diplomatic hostages as part of some kind of goodwill gesture at the start of the talks. But of course, there is a lot of distrust on all sides. We've had changes of administration in Iran and in the US. And so, you know, if you're kind of thinking that a breakthrough in the nuclear deal is is going to facilitate this, that seems like a bit of a long shot at the moment. And it does seem like a very, very long process, doesn't it? Um, what do we look for next in in this kind of sad and awful case? Then is it is it is it just waiting to see whether she will be recalled to prison, and and then if she is recalled to prison and manages to serve her her new one year sentence, what's there to say that there won't be new charges against her when she she finishes that one? Well, indeed. And in fact, there is um, she has also been sentenced to a travel ban. So um, which Richard believes is um, concurrent. So would come after the year in prison. So she'd have a year in prison and then she wouldn't be allowed to leave Iran for another year. So, you know, you're now looking at 2023. And as he said to me, the problem is that in state terms, you know, when you're looking at a government perspective, that is not much. But in human personal terms, three years is is a lifetime. I mean, you know, for Richard, for Nazanin and for their daughter, and we know how much trauma she has already experienced, Nazanin. She's been depressed. She's been in solitary confinement. One can only imagine the agony of thinking this will continue for another year. Similarly for Anusha, I mean, he's got another six or seven years to serve out. He's 67 years old. He's tried to commit suicide three times at the beginning because he felt so under pressure. He felt his family were being threatened as well. So he thought if he killed himself, that would be a way out of it. So both sides recognize that there is no immediate answer to this unless the British government acts in some way. I said to Anusha's son, Arian, who I met outside the foreign office, he had spent a night with Richard in the pop-up tents there. I said to him, well, Iran can't hold them forever. And his answer was, why not? I mean, they don't have to give them up. Something has to happen to make them want to free these hostages because otherwise there is no pressure. And unfortunately, at the moment, the pressure is coming from a man 
sitting on a pavement, starving himself to try and get his wife home. Well, that's uh, a, a terrible, a terrible image. And we hope that something uh, positive will come out of all of this. Thank you to my brilliant colleague, Clara Nihanela. You can read Clara's piece on the trials of Nazanin Zaghari Ratcliffe by buying issue 268 of the New European Newsstands or by subscribing at the neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. And finally, it's the Hall of Shame, where we put putrid pundits, pompous politicians, things that get my goat generally. I would put Geoffrey Cox in the Hall of Shame, but I don't think I can afford him, and I don't think I can afford to move the Hall of Shame to Mauritius. So instead, let's start with Roger Helmer, the former UKIP MEP, best known for a photograph of Roger resting his eyes in the Parliament chamber. He is somebody we used to talk about every week on this podcast. He is now one of the many Brexiteers who's moved on to the tedious so-called war on woke. And Roger Helmer writes... So much 20th and 21st century music, blues, jazz, reggae, rock and roll, has its roots in black American music and slavery. Isn't it time it was all cancelled? And for a moment there, I thought, is Roger Helmer really making a subtle point about the appropriation of black music by white groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones? I mean, isn't that fascinating that someone who, you know, presents himself as a complete idiot should say something so interesting? And then... Obviously, I realise that Roger Helmer is, in fact, a complete idiot. And he's actually saying if they take down the statues of the slave traders, they've got to silence the music of the enslaved people, too. What a total Helmer. Next in the Hall of Shame is the MP for rugby, Mark Pawsey, who's spoken up twice in the Commons recently to say how concerned he is that environmental legislation is going to harm firms that produce plastic. Now, that's a point of view, of course, especially if you work for a firm that produces plastic. But it turns out, that Mark does really work for those firms. He's making £30,000 a year. That's about the same as the average wage for those of us who only have one job. He's getting £30,000 a year as the chairman of a lobbying group for the packaging industry and then speaking up against environmental protections against packaging. Palsy said, it is not the packaging manufacturer that's the polluter. People are. Yes, it's the old guns don't kill people. People kill people defence, which is easily countered by saying, isn't it? Well, what happens if you take away the guns? What happens, Mark, if you take away the plastic, harmful plastic packaging? Who does the polluting then? How do they do it? But this week, because of COP26, the Hall of Shame ends with me saying, alack, egad, harumph. Anne Widdicombe is in the Hall of Shame. Well, she's always in the Hall of Shame because every week I read out the most ridiculous bits from Anne Widdicombe's ridiculous column in the Ridiculous Daily Express in a section, a ridiculous section that we've come to know as Anne Widdicombe Corner. And this week is particularly ridiculous. Anne Widdicombe writes, of course it was appropriate for the Queen to welcome the COP summit on UK soil, but the royal family is becoming associated with one side of the debate. For the time being, that is the winning side, the dominant side, the all-powerful and richly resourced side. But there is another much-suppressed train of scientific thought. If the wind ever changes, the monarchy will be badly exposed. Well, I think that's quite right. There is a much-suppressed train of scientific thought about climate change, and it's been suppressed because that train of thought about climate change is completely nuts. It's much suppressed for a reason. It's ridiculous. But I will say that if the Queen wants to listen to Anne Widdicombe, there is one member of the royal family she could put out in the world to back that much suppressed train of scientific thought about climate change, that it doesn't exist. So step forward, Prince Andrew, the idea that climate change doesn't exist is about as credible as many other things you've said. 
And who better to speak up for the benefits of an overheating planet than a man who doesn't sweat? That was the New European Podcast with Steve Anglesey. Thanks to you for listening. Thanks to our producer, Ellie Longman-Rood. Episodes of the New European Podcast are now released every Thursday. If you enjoy it, subscribe, rate and review it on your podcatcher of choice. And if you want to enjoy more podcasts from the New European, check out Charlie Connolly's Great European Lives, available wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like more from the New European, you can visit our new website and join us by subscribing at neweuropean.co.uk slash subscribe. On social media, you can join our Facebook readers group. You can follow us on Twitter at The New European. You can follow me on Twitter at Sanglesey. Until the next time we meet, so long, snowflakes.